Sometimes you get an Amazon package that's relevant. We will, uh, we will come back to that. If you have your Bibles, you might open them with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we'll be there in a few minutes. Matthew chapter 5, uh, specifically verse 27. We'll be there in a few minutes. We're in a series called Asking for a Friend. I'm going to leave my friendly package right over here, hoping, hoping that it doesn't uh, blow up this keyboard. Stay. Works with a dog, right? So, works with Amazon packages. So, we're in a series called Asking for a Friend. We're asking some uh, sometimes hard, sometimes embarrassing, sometimes difficult questions. Questions that often we don't ask in church. And uh, hopefully, you have an outline because there's a lot of blanks to fill in today. And I just wanted real clarity. There's a couple of spelling mistakes here. I apologize for that. Uh, We'll get those corrected along the way. Uh, but today's question, as I mentioned during the announcements, is uh, has some sensitivity to it, right? And in our culture today, uh, this is a gigantic cultural conversation, and one I don't think, on one hand, the church can be silent on, and on the other hand, a conversation that I think, I've got to be careful with my words here, but on either side, we often get wrong. So please bear with me as we read the Bible together, all right? I don't want you to... If I say something that's not in, in touch with the Bible, correct me, all right? I just want to go after what is it that God would say to this question we're asking today, why does Jesus care or why does God care about who I sleep with? Which presumes really two questions. One, does God care who I sleep with? And two, why? And so we've got to understand that biblically along the way. Again, we'll be in Matthew 5 to answer that along with a bunch of other Bible verses that I have in your notes. But as we look at those today, I want to think about how churches act when it comes to the issue of sex. All right, there are, uh, let's, let's be clear, a church, a church full of perfect people who never sin... would be a church with Jesus and nobody else. Are we clear? Right? Does this make sense? All right. So then that means there are really, in my mind, three types of churches when it comes around to issues like this. One, there are churches who pretend that they're perfect people keeping the perfect rules. Right? That would be, uh, I don't know, right, left, but that, that, would be, that would be one extreme. Perfect people pretending that they keep the perfect rules. The other extreme would be churches who pretend there are no rules, God has no expectations, character, morality, some of that kind of stuff is really not the issue. Jesus is love, Jesus is grace. I don't dispute that. Jesus is love, Jesus is grace. I I don't dispute that. But, But that God has no expectations of us at all. And then there are churches, third, who are made up of sinners who need grace and truth in order to be transformed into the image of God they were created to be. Sinners who need grace and truth in order to be transformed into saints, if we want to use a very biblical word. To be clear, saints comes from the same word that means holy. And so when we're talking about saints, we're talking about people who are being made holy. I want to be abundantly clear about that. My ability to be holy on my own is shot. Right? I mean, it's full of holes. It's, it, it, it just doesn't look right. I, I am marred by sin. 
but by the grace of Jesus, God looks into my life and positionally, when he sees Jesus in me, he sees Jesus' holiness in me. And that's what I was granted when I became a believer in Jesus Christ. But as a disciple of Christ, I am in the process of being made holy. This is called sanctification, theologically speaking. Another very big biblical word that just means we're in the process of being made holy. That there's a transformation that's going on inside of us. And for that transformation to take place, I'm a sinner who needs grace and truth every day. And I'm going to find that right here in my Bible. So let me very quickly give you what I think our culture's view of sex is. And it's not a very biblical view, but let's be fair in trying to describe our culture's view. This is not only our culture's view. It is almost every culture's view, historically speaking. Not all, but many. So our culture's view of sex. One, Pleasure and happiness are what matter most, right? That, that living for anything but pleasure and happiness just makes no sense. This is what our culture would say. If it feels good, right. That, that's the culture around us. That In that sense, if you were to watch TV in sort of modern America, you get the sense that sex is the most important thing there is because the most important thing there is is pleasure and happiness. Secondarily, Our culture around us would say sex is casual, that there's nothing serious or sacred about it. We have the word serious spelled wrong there. I apologize for that. Sex is casual and there is nothing serious or sacred about it, which means along the way that who you do what with is nobody's business but yours, that that God shouldn't care, that nobody else should care, and that that, that it's, it's just... It's just fun. It's, it's just flesh. It's, it's, it's just animalistic. It, it's just a lot of things, our culture would say. Now, these two things conflict with each other. If pleasure and happiness are what matter most, they're like the most important thing in life, but sex is casual and there's nothing serious or sacred about it, we are in the same breath saying that, that <laughs> there is, that is no big deal who I sleep with but, but sleeping with someone is the biggest deal there is. That's the message of our culture and most every other culture around us. Number three, our culture would tell us that my sexual attractions and exploits define my identity. That who I am in my core as, as my identity, that who I am at my deepest soul, my deepest person, my deepest sense of who I am is defined by who I'm attracted to and what I do about that. That's the culture around us. That applies to conversations about uh, everything from homosexuality to, to any other thing that, that is sexual related at all. That, that the most important thing about you is who you're attracted to. God, on the other hand, would see a lot of things about us and say these other things are far more important particularly his love for us. We have for years and years and years taught that when it comes to identity, that my identity is found in who I am in Christ, that I am the beloved of God, that I am his child, that I am loved by God. 
There's one more here, and this one bleeds over into church world a lot. Uh, but our culture's view of sex, I think even people around us who would say, I don't think there's a God, or, or if there is a God, you know, you can't really know him, or you can't really understand him, or you know, sort of an agnostic approach, or there's nothing really you can know about God if there is a God. That, that our culture would say, look, if there is a God, then that God would know that I deserve an exception. An exception. And so God might or might not, just depending on who God is or isn't, might have some sort of uh, like lofty expectations and standards and that kind of thing. But God knows that I'm different. God knows that I am not like everybody else. God knows that I that there's special circumstances in my case. God knows that he made me the way I am. Now, this argument doesn't just apply to those of my friends or my family members or yours who would say I'm gay. This would apply to, to everyone because people would say, I have these instincts. God made me with those instincts. God should know. After all, he made me that way. That I have no choice but to act upon them. I have a lot of non-sexually related instincts that aren't always good. Right? Let's just be fair about that. When I'm in trouble, this is when I was like very, when I was like three. Hey, Brian, did you sneak that out of the cabinet or out of the fridge or out of the, my instinct was to, was, no, I didn't, I lie, right? Right? So God should know that he made me with these instincts. So again, I'm not trying to make this into a homosexuality versus heterosexuality conversation alone. Because there are plenty of Christians who would say, you know, my girlfriend and I or my boyfriend and I, you know, we're, we're, we're just like, look, it's... It's, it's cheaper to live together. Like, I, I've, I have friends who said, look, if we get married, our insurance thing gets crazy complicated. Like, we're older adults. It's, it's just simpler if we live together than if we get married. Like, I don't like that, but it's the way the world works. God knows, God understands that there's an exception for me. This is an argument that the enemy often uses to talk us into all forms of temptation, not just the sexual ones. That, that, that it's really no big deal. So again, does God care about who I sleep with? And I, I want to have an honest reading of Scripture. So I'm going to start in the beginning, uh, pretty literally. Genesis chapter 2. Apparently I have a preface in the beginning in my Bible, which isn't really helpful. Right? Because you would think if I turn to page one. Right? I don't need 15 pages of preface. I just need the Bible. Yeah, it is a pastor's. That just means it's bigger print so I can read it without going like this as I get older. Genesis chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to begin in verse 22. And I'm, I'm sort of beginning in the middle of something. Right? So, no suitor suitable helper for Adam had been found. God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. 
And while Adam was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, he closed up the place uh, with flesh. Verse 22, Genesis 2 says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. This language is very graphic. He brought her to the man. Um, We do the same thing, culturally speaking, when we watch weddings today, where 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 a woman is brought to a man. And that is not that is not to go down the road of women are possessions or women belong to their parents and they get sold to you know their future husband or I'm, I'm not that that's not what this is. But God brought her to the man. He was trying to find a suitable suitable helper who would be the right mate, the right person for the man. And actually if you read the story, they'd gone animal by animal by animal and like Adam, Adam's going. That, that's not my teammate. Like you know, I think dogs. Man's best friend probably showed up, and man was like, "That's good," but, but no. And so God brought the woman to the man, and the man said, "This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man." And that is why a man leaves his father and mother because God brought her. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So we have a lot going on here, but we have the first man, we have the first woman, we have the first incidents of sort of, uh, if we just want to be blunt about it, sex in the Bible, and that there's nothing dirty about it, there's nothing shameful about it, that this is God saying, this is what I intended, and this is good. It was Adam and his wife, after God brought the woman to the man, and they were united. In fact, the word united means to be uh, bonded to, to be glued to, we could say, uh, I will say in a minute, to be in a sort of a a lifetime permanent bond with, not sort of, just completely a lifetime permanent bond. And they become one flesh. And this one flesh represents this this mystery that marriage is is meant to be full of intimacy. That sex happens to represent. And by the way, also becomes the means through which children are conceived and later born, right? And so all of this is intentional on God's part. It's important we get those verses down. Later in the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, we have the telling of, well, there's two places this shows up in the Bible, but the, the Ten Commandments, right? Would you, would, would anybody sort of argue, I mean, I even think if you're a non-Christian, this is hard to argue with. Would anybody argue that our culture is like obsessed with sexual stuff? All right, now that, that's our culture, generally speaking. I'm going to go further than that, and, and I'm going to label it something from God's point of view. Our culture is ex- obsessed with sexual idolatry, that we make sex into a God, and, and that, that you can see idolatry all over the place. And I realize non-Christians may not agree with that aspect, but certainly the obsession with sex is there. And So the question I sort of wonder is, how many of the Ten Commandments do we break with sexual idolatry? And of course, there's, there's the big one, uh, uh, you shall not commit adultery, number seven, if I'm counting those right. But I think we break almost all of them with a sexually idolatrous culture, right? You shall have no other gods before me, we make sex into a god. You shall not make an image out of anything, you shall not bow down to them. This is about idols, about making images out of gods, right? Again, we have uh, graphic images that people bow down to. 
metaphorically speaking, all the time. There's, there's honor your father and mother. You know, it, it, there's not just your father and mother, but I think there is a sense that if, if I cheat with someone, I'm not, but if I cheat with someone, that they have a father and mother, am I honoring and... Right? How about, how about you shall not commit adultery? That, that's obvious. You shall not steal... You shall not give false testimony. I guarantee you that false testimony goes with adultery all the time. Or you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Like like almost every one of these is a violation of sort of God's intent. And then, of course, there's, okay, but everybody's, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I I know. That's, That's that Old Testament. Remember, it's old. Old. You know what, old, you know, people today, I mean, people who are like in tune and drive Teslas and that that kind of stuff, old means irrelevant. You know what else are old? Diamonds. If you have any diamonds that are old and irrelevant, I would be glad to take yours. I mean, in all seriousness, I just, I would, I would keep a collection of them if you would. Puppies are worth a lot these days. Turns out old doesn't mean always irrelevant. So there's Jesus. What did Jesus say? I mean, because at the end of the day, that's what everybody wants to know. What do the red letters say? And, and I just love to remind us that it's all inspired word of God, that, that it's not meant to be like Jesus is in contradiction with everything else. Jesus is the lens, I think, through which we interpret everything else but it's not in contradiction with everything else so here's jesus very clear words it's the verses i told you to turn to matthew chapter 5 verse 27 you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery this is jesus in the part of the sermon on the mount where he's going through all kinds of things that the leaders of the day would teach he said you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery i mean of course they've heard it said it was ten commandments Right? He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if you think Jesus, like, oh, come on, Jesus, are you really being serious about this stuff? The very next verse, he says, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, that's extreme. It's hyperbole. I don't think that Jesus wants me out there with a hacksaw, you know. But I do think he's saying, take this seriously. Because, because what he's talking about, and actually when he does, you know, you've heard it said, but I say to you, in almost every case, there were leaders who were saying, we keep the law and we keep it perfectly. They were pretending. And Jesus is saying, but the law goes deeper. It's about our hearts, what's really going on deep inside of us. Just how perfectly are you keeping that part? Jesus does not lower the bar here. If anything, he makes the bar a lot higher. Of course, a few verses later, Matthew 5, 43, this part's not about sex, but it is about how we relate to people around us. He says, you've heard it, that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'll come back to that in a minute, but I just want to keep going. 1 Corinthians six eighteen through 20, flee from sexual immorality, right? That, that we are, when that temptation is there, and it is there for all of us, that the right response is to flee from that temptation. 
We see a picture of that in Joseph in the Old Testament very directly. Flee from all sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So Jesus sets this very high standard and says, it's not just about who you touch. It's about who you think about. It's about how you look at a person. And Paul here says, honor God with your bodies because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. There's something sacred going on here. And in that context, he talked about whether you unite your bodies with prostitutes. Proverbs 6.32, a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-7, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that's that process of being made holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Holy life. So the bar is very high, Hebrews thirteen four. Marriage should be honored by all, the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. There's one more I want to throw out for you. How did Jesus interact with people caught up in sexual sin? You might remember he was often called the friend of... Yeah, yeah, both, right? Friend of prostitutes, friend of sinners, that Jesus was judged by the religious elite of his day for how dare he associate with people who sin in these certain kinds of ways. And for the pretenders, there was very much a sense that, look, I mean, I'm not a perfect person, but come on, I don't sin like those really bad sinners. And those are the people Jesus was hanging out with. So there's this story, and I, I have to confess to you and admit to you, it's, it's in John chapter 8, and there's some... Uh, there's some challenge as to whether this story is original to Jesus or not. Meaning, was this really in the earliest manuscripts that we have? It's in a lot of later manuscripts. It's not in the very earliest manuscripts we have of the Bible. And almost all of your mo modern Bibles will note that. I have a tendency to still believe that this is a genuine story because there's nothing in it that conflicts with anything else I see about the life of Jesus Christ. And there's this, you know the story probably, there's this woman caught in adultery. And frankly, I think she's set up because she's set up by, by one of these religious elite kind of guys. And they, she just happens to be at the right time in the right season caught in adultery. You, you could say that she that she was being used as a tool of manipulation. That this was unfair to her completely. And so she was dragged, who knows in what shape or what clothing. And nobody talks about the man caught in adultery. Which again, I, I would say it's because this was a setup. And so they dragged this woman, and there's all these religious leaders around, and they 
this woman was caught in adultery. What do, what do you say we do? And, and, and these leaders are all picking up stones. And they're, the law says that we should stone a woman such as this. Basically, Jesus, you know, what's your take? And Jesus stoops down and he writes on the ground. And we don't know what he wrote on the ground. And I have guesses about what that is. But he wrote, he wrote something on the ground here. And he wrote something on the ground there. And this is where we, you know... This is where we get the, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone. And it says one by one, starting with the oldest, they dropped their stones and walked away. And then we get these verses. John eight ten, Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And he said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now. And leave your life of sin. And I find this story to be super Jesus-y. Neither do I condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. Right? It's very similar to the woman, the, the woman at the well. And he told her about all the, all the husbands she had had. And on one hand, he's, he's crossing boundaries. He's very gracious. He's very loving. He's doing things that will change her eternity. And on the other hand, he's pointing out sin in her life and calling her to live beyond that. And I see grace and truth in all of this. And if I go back to where I started, there are churches who, who embrace grace but throw out truth. And there are churches that embrace truth and throw out grace. And all we're doing when we do that is uh, what I'm doing with my handy-dandy friend here. We're just taking scissors to our Bibles. I know, right? Right? I mean, who orders scissors this big? This is exact... I was trying to look for scissors to make this point, and ribbon-cutting scissors were what these were called when I ordered them on Amazon. And so, and they came in a box, actually, not just that bag. They came in a box, and I was like, what in the world is in this box? I don't remember. I opened it up, and I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so here's, what, here's what churches do. They take the parts they agree with and affirm their nature, and, and they say, this part is the Bible. And they take the parts they don't like, and they take the big scissors to them, and they cut out the parts they don't like. Would you, would you say that you see... All sides of sort of Christianity do this. Here's the problem with that. When we gut what's in Scripture, that makes it super easy for someone else to come along and say, I'm going to cut out the Jesus parts. I don't like that. I'm going to cut out the, the law parts. I don't like any of those. I don't, and pretty soon you have everything left on the cutting floor, and the only thing left is the preface and the maps. Does God care who I sleep with? I think, I think the only honest reading of the Bible, and all the verses I just went through, and there were verses I didn't get into, because we are time limited today. But the answer has to be yes. Because God says all kinds of stuff about it. Why does God care about who I sleep with? Well, let me give you very quickly what God knows about sex as the creator of sex. Right? This, in a sense, comes right out of Genesis 2. 
and all we talked about there. Number one, sex is meant to be a permanent bond. I don't mean like an eternal, like for eternity, because there's some stuff Jesus says later about us not being married in eternity, and that gets to be a mystery and complex and hard to understand, and some things that, that I will admit I don't fully have figured out about heaven and eternity and forever. But in this life, sex is meant to be a permanent bond, a a, a a, a, a bond that is a faithfulness bond, a united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And in marriage, there is a oneness, and there is mystery around this. But sex is meant to be this bond between husband and wife that represents the intimacy that marriage is meant to be. And it happens best in this context that is certainly... More than a physical act. For everybody would say, sex is casual. There's nothing. It's just flesh. It's just a physical act. God would say, no. I mean, it's an emotional act. It's a spiritual act. There's something sacred about it. It's inward as well as outward. There's intimacy, not just flesh. You can say it's just flesh all you want, that it's just casual. But oh, there's a biblical word for that. If, 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 it's baloney. If you buy that, I've got some oceanfront property. Arizona, you know that? You know that song, don't you? The reality is there's nothing casual, casual about sex. And every 14-year-old knows it. Every 80-year-old knows it. It tends to be all of us in between that want to play those games. Number two, sex is good in the context of one man married to one woman, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. And I realize I am, I am not skipping and not cutting out, but also not taking the time to dive into every scripture about homosexuality and every scripture about prostitution and every scripture about bestiality and every scripture about a variety of other sexual things that the Bible will refer to as sin. But I simply want to make the point that when God created sex, He was creating something good. In fact, I think you could say this, that, that thinking sex is a good idea was God's idea. But God knew how powerful it was. And so God put limits on his good idea. He put limits on what could happen with his good idea and who could participate in his good idea. I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if I had a Ferrari and my 12-year-old wanted to take it for a spin... Right? God created sex for one woman united to one man in marriage for whole life. And he did that because that provides security and trust, trust stability in a family. By the way, I, I just got to say this. Let's not be surprised that our culture around us doesn't really understand these teachings. Like a lot of us in church world want to go back to the 1950s, but... Like, wasn't Mad Men set in the 1950s? It's not like the 1950s were obeying everything biblically. They're always... Why do we call prostitution the world's oldest profession? Shows up right back here, near the preface. By the way, 
I am sometimes asked if Harvest or I as a pastor will ever perform a gay wedding. And I'm going to give you my straight up answer to that. And I've said this for years, right? You can check this with past sermons that I've preached. You can check it with when you've asked me this privately. I will not and Harvest will not as it goes against our convictions about what marriage is and who marriage is for. That said, it doesn't mean that I hate people who are gay. It doesn't mean that people who are LGBTQ or any other letters plus anything else deserve to be treated with anything other than the way Jesus would treat them. This is where I struggle with churches that lean conservative is that the politics tend to invade the church, and then as that happens, we tend to sound less like Jesus and more like the hateful bigots with the stones ready to stone a person. The reality is, and God knows this, sex is powerful enough to consume my life. Sex is, in a sense, like nuclear material. Used rightly, it can power the world. Used wrongly, it's really disastrous. Sex is like fire. In the right place, a fire is nice, right? When a fire is in the fire pit or the fireplace, we can do good things with it, right? I mean, I like, I like marshmallows. But when sex breaks out of the fireplace in the house, it consumes the house. Again, if we were to think about handing the keys to a Ferrari to a 12-year-old, which is encouraged pretty strongly, culturally speaking. We're handing 12-year-olds something they cannot handle. That's why God made things the way He did. The way He did. If, if you don't believe that sex can be consuming, you should sit in some of my counseling sessions. Of course, I would never really invite you to do that. There's privacy stuff involved. But you should sit in some of my counseling sessions when I talk with a person whose marriage has been torn apart by unfaithfulness, when I talk with a a man who is consumed by pornography, uh, when I sit with a young woman who, who is now pregnant and not sure what to do because she's not ready to handle that. There's a lot going on when God puts limits on what sex is for and who sex is for. Again, why does God care about who I sleep with? Let me say it in a sentence as clearly as I know how. That the boundary, this is the one thing the message is about. Uh, It's on the back page. The boundaries placed around sex by God are guardrails that are meant to protect everyone, including women and kids. The boundaries placed around sex are guardrails that are meant to protect everyone, including women and children. When God says no to something, He is protecting. Sex bonds us in ways that we still, in all of our uh, enlightenedness, still don't quite totally understand. To become one flesh has a mystery to it. And when uh, (laughs) when we won ourselves, when two people won themselves in ways that don't make sense, we get frustrated and there's carnage and consequences of unwanting what God has made one. 
That is to say, when we do sex outside of marriage, when we do sex a variety of other ways, that we're bonding ourselves to something that has consequences. It's worth noting that God's purpose for sex is procreation, not just some sense of recreation or recreation. That there is very much a sense that, that, that for all of time, that, that babies come through sex, that the species goes on because of what happens there. And no honest reading of Scripture can imply that God doesn't really give a flip about who sleeps with who. But likewise, no honest reading of Scripture can imply that Jesus doesn't love you because of who you sleep with. No honest reason of Scripture can say, well, Jesus loves these kinds of sinners, but not these kinds of sinners. I would be glad privately to have that conversation with you if that's a challenge in your thinking. Because I don't see Jesus ever make a distinction between, I love these sinners, but I don't love those ones. Even the Pharisees, who he had his greatest challenges with, who were the religious elites, who also were responsible for stoking up everything that led to his crucifixion. He still loved them, and one of them, or more, became a follower of Jesus. Tim Keller writes this, I think it's a good word. He says, there's a dissonance in committing your body to someone to whom you will not commit your whole life. There's a dissonance in committing your body to someone to whom you will not commit your whole life. Sam Albury, in similar teaching, says, having sex with someone without the intent to give them your whole life is actually theft. Again, back to Keller. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely permanently and exclusively to you. We should not use sex to say anything else. Unfortunately, our culture does all the time, and Christians do all of the time, and the consequences are difficult, like the 12-year-old driving the Ferrari, like the wildfire driven by the winds of passions, but burned out of control with no place to anchor it. Sex within a covenant marriage says that I belong to God and you belong to God and there is something sacred in our union. I said just a second ago that the boundaries placed around sex are, 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 are guardrails that are meant to protect everyone, including women and kids. I want to think about this in the context that is well beyond American borders. We have laws that protect women and kids in American life, right? You do realize not every country in the world has that. In fact, historically, not every country in the world has had that. Most have not. And when God gave his laws and his expectations to the people of Israel, they were the laws of the land. So I want you to think about a culture that has no boundaries around sex. It says that as a dude... I can do whatever I want with my body, with whomever I want, regardless of whether I've pledged my life to someone else. Not only if I do that, does that damage my wife, that damages the other person 
that I am uniting my life with. Right? Again, bond two pieces of paper together with glue, let it dry, and then try to tear them back apart without rips and scars and tears. Take this further. Think about the think about the pornography side that's so prevalent in our culture today. That idolizes sex but treats women as commodities to be traded for personal pleasure. There is nothing pro-women about that. And by the way, women struggle with pornography these days as much as men do. It's so prevalent, it's so accessible, it's so available. If I dishonor my wife and my God by uniting my body with someone else who is not my wife, I am not only disregarding her and God, I am disregarding what does not belong to me, and I am stealing something that isn't mine. That's not good for women. And I am, when if I were to unite myself with a prostitute, I am invading a space that is sacred, that is not mine. My, her body does not belong to me. This says, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I was bought at a cost. That I am to honor God with my body. And honoring God with my body, I am recognizing that, that that other person is also bought with a price and that her body, in this case, is not mine. Does that make sense? Someone might say, you know what, that's just insulting, Brian, to say that we need God to protect women and children. And yet we petition our very own government to pass laws all of the time to do that very thing, protect women and children. God was setting up a law for His people Israel in the Old Testament that was meant to protect everyone. And a culture that devalues women and children, that says a man can do whatever he wants, a man can disregard whoever he wants, and a man can own and disown whoever he wants, is not honoring of women or children or family life or anything of that nature. God says that sex is sacred, that she is sacred, that those kids are sacred too, and they are to be treated that way. I don't know if you know this, but you know we Christians are pretty good at hypocrisy in this realm. Right? We often spend time insisting that the world operate on God's standards, while we don't always operate on God's standards. Have you noticed this? Likewise, Christians often spend time insisting that the world operate on God's standards without Jesus, who is the standard. In other words, you and I aren't very good at doing the standard without Jesus in our lives, but we expect people who don't have Jesus in their life to live by God's high standard. This is the part where I think we take scissors in conservative circles to the parts of Scripture that, that say that Jesus was a friend of sinners. The reality is, if as missionaries we were to go around the world to some culture and we were to say, look, here's the message of God. Fix yourself sexually and then I'll talk to you about Jesus. Not only would that fail, we'd be idiots for trying that strategy. Sorry, strong language. Because that strategy would... We would be saying, hold to a standard you already break or incapable of living to. And to which I am incapable of living to. 
If our message, on the other hand, is, yes, God has a standard, but you and I go far beyond that, we are incapable of living up to it on our own, that you and I are sinners in need of a Savior, and once you have a Savior, you're called to live holy as He is holy, that there is a cost to discipleship, that there is a sense in following Him, that only with Jesus can I be made holy. If that's our message, I think we're getting the whole gospel there. But if we leave Jesus out and say, we're just going to fight a culture war, which is what we do, and say the world should live our way, whether they love our Jesus or not, we're fighting a battle that we won't win that way. I'm not here today to define every version of wrong when it comes to sex, but I do want to be very clear about what God is for when it comes to sex, not just what God is against. So in the fleeting moments I have left, I want to give you five truths about God's expectations of Christians as it relates to sex. Number one, we play a lot of mental gymnastics when it comes to sex. We play mental gymnastics. Jesus does not. Literally, I mean this in terms of gymnastics. We play a lot of high bar, low bar. Our questions are often lower than we care to admit when it comes to ourselves. The question we often ask, in fact, privately, I've had people ask me this. How far can we go and it still be okay? How far can we go and get away with it? How far can we go and it's acceptable? Right? Our questions are lowering the bar. Now, when it comes to our kids, we want a high bar. When it comes to ourselves, we want a low bar. And so we're playing low bar, high bar all the time. God's expectations are a high bar. It's honor God with your body. It's holiness and purity and things of that nature. We want low bar. How far can we go and get away with it? Schools, we want a high bar. TV watching, we want a low bar. We play mental gymnastics all of the time. Even culturally speaking, in a Me Too world, we have to admit that we realize that there are lines that should never be crossed. In our cultural debate and discussions, the question really never is, should there be a line? The question is simply, is that bar low or high? That Where is the line? But even those who are most adamant against how I would interpret the Bible sort of biblically, and even adamant against my faith, would say there are things people should never do. And actually, I would affirm much of that. I just believe God's standard goes beyond where their line is. Jesus' bar is a very hard bar. It's not just who you touch, it's who you look at, it's who you think about, it's who you lust after, which just leads me to number two. Jesus calls us to honor and holiness, but not to be holier than thou. If anybody on the planet ever deserved to act holier than thou, it was Jesus himself who didn't. Jesus calls us to honor and holiness, but not to be pretenders who pretend we're holy when we're not who pretend we're holier than everybody else when we're not. Jesus calls us to honor and holiness in a hedonistic world. Hedonism just means that pleasure and happiness are the highest good. And Jesus calls us to a higher good, holiness. 
And again, how often do we want to win the cultural debate on these issues without ever solving them personally? Number three, Jesus calls us to self-denial in a self-indulgent world. Actually, if I didn't believe in Jesus at all, and this life were all there is, and there was no eternity, and there was no Jesus, and there was no God, I could easily, like those around me in this culture, conclude that that pleasure and self-indulgence is all there really is to live for. I can see where people make that conclusion. I'm not agreeing with it. I can just see how they get there. As a Christian, I believe there's something higher I am called to. Specifically, not self-indulgence, but self-denial. Take sex out of the conversation and put it in any other context. And Jesus calls us to self-denial, not self-indulgence. That self-indulgence at the end of the day is about pleasing myself, which is at the root and core of my sin. But denying myself, the opposite of pleasing myself, reflects Jesus and his way of life. That I am called to honor, I am called to sacrifice, and I am called to serve others. Number four, Jesus calls us to faithfulness in a faithless world. Faithfulness in a faithless world. None of this faithfulness really can happen without a nourishing, deeper walk with Jesus Christ. It's why when we battle temptations of the mind and temptations of the body and temptations of the heart and soul, we need to nourish on our walk with Jesus Christ. Because when we nourish on the things of the world, we'll get the things of the world. I told you guys last week I performed a wedding in Texas for great friend's uh, daughter. We have watched her since she was a baby. She is like a, a, a third, four, her and her sister are like third and fourth daughters to us. We've been a part of their lives since before they knew they existed, basically. That, that we love these kids. And in doing this wedding, I talked to them about honor and faithfulness. That we are called to honor God. We are called to honor one another above ourselves. That we are called to honor our vows. And we are called to honor our mate. That that's what we're committing to. I just wanted to make sure that's what they were committing to. Number five, Jesus calls us to grace, truth, and kindness. Grace, truth, and kindness. I've got to be straight with you. I never see Jesus with sinners, with prostitutes, with tax collectors. I never see him with them saying, you get out of here. Show me the one place in the Bible where he did. Does that mean God doesn't have standards? Not at all. It means that he chose grace, he chose truth, and he chose kindness. You say, but what about that time that he got the whips out? What about that time he turned over the tables? God was not with the sinners. It was with sinners, just people who wouldn't admit that they were sinners. They were sinning for sure. In fact, read the Bible in its context and you often get uh, religious types who are idolatrous compared to adulterers. Read the prophets and you get the sense that the people of God were committing spiritual adultery. But at the end of the day, Jesus came to die for sinners. And with that woman caught in adultery, his words were, neither do I condemn you, neither do I. 
Go now and leave your life of sin. He gave her grace. He gave her truth. We are called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How did Jesus treat people who weren't religious? Like he loved them. How did Jesus treat prostitutes? People who, weren't, who were known culturally to not be sexually pure. And all those religious elites weren't sexually pure either. Like I'm, I'm, I'm just flat out stating the woman caught in adultery, I think, was with one of those religious elites. This was all a setup. He treated them with grace and truth and kindness. Jesus was known. It was a term of, they, they were meaning it as a cut down, that he was a friend of sinners. How dare he? It was scandalous back then for him to act that way. I would suggest it's scandalous today when the body of Christ is a friend of sinners. But Jesus was accused of this over and over and over, of loving sinners. It's almost like, duh. And this was their problem with Jesus. He loves those people more than he loves us people. There is no those people. There is no us versus them. And the hypocrisy at that level in the Christian world is, where did I put them? Nothing but taking scissors to Scripture about who Jesus is. Now that I have gone uh, like out of my way to probably defend, uh, offend everybody on all sides, I would just say to you that here at Harvest, we have committed ourselves to love who Jesus loves and love how Jesus loves. Grace and truth. So that said, can I pray for us? We're going to pray two prayers. We often end with two prayers. One is a prayer of salvation. The second is a prayer of application. I really believe that that we need both. If you need Jesus today, and you've heard maybe today for the first time that Jesus is a friend of sinners, he loves you, he died on the cross for not only your sins, but mine and everybody else's, that they buried him in a borrowed grave, that he rose again on the third day, that he's truly alive, you, you need that forgiveness and grace and truth. Maybe you'd pray with me right now. Even online, dear Jesus, I need you to forgive me because I sin and I fall short. And I ask you to take over my life and be my God and bring forgiveness and grace to my world. Jesus, live inside of me and change me from the inside out so that I actually live your way. Your way of love and truth and grace. Make me like you, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. If that's you online or here in the room, I would love to celebrate and know that you have become a Christian for the very first time. Next week, we'll celebrate baptism. We do that uh, as, as a way of demonstrating to the world that we've given our lives to Christ. And we'd love to talk about next steps and what it means to be a person of faith. And I'd love to celebrate with you, but I can't celebrate if I don't know about it. So you can let me know a lot of ways. There's those communication cards we mentioned earlier. You can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. You can find me after service. You can tell someone you came with. We would love to celebrate that. I also want to pray a prayer of application for all of us. And if you need (laughs) 
application of Jesus' truth to this aspect of your life, and I believe we all do. Would you pray this prayer of application with me, Jesus? We need your forgiveness for our own sin. And we thank you that you died to make that possible. We need your presence to help us live lives of honor and holiness. We need your wisdom as we sometimes make difficult choices. We need your strength to make changes in our thoughts and behaviors. We need your love and your grace, your truth as well as we interact with those around us. At the end of the day, Jesus, we need you to help us follow you in self-denial and sacrifice and servanthood. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so that was like two sermons worth of stuff. I, I realize that. I know I went long today. I love you guys. We love this community. Love, grace, truth always sort of represent, right? Right. I, I just want to make sure that we don't take out the big ribbon-cutting scissors and gut the Jesus of the Bible because I'm done without him. I'm lost without him. I'm toast without him. You with me?